Hey there. Welcome to The Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zen Heilingha. Humans have been migrating for just about as long as we've been humans. Today, migration is one of the most politically charged topics throughout the world. But not all migrants are created equal. To help guide us through this tricky world of migration and its seemingly infinite categories, we invited Dr. Ilse van Limt. In this conversation, we talk about the numerous types of migrants and the differences in the ways they're treated. We chat about how migrants can influence the culture of their hosts and vice versa. We consider impossible questions like, when does someone stop being a migrant and how or who determines that. From this conversation, it's pretty clear how migration is inextricably linked to geography, and that attributes like race, gender, and education are fundamental to understanding why we see certain migrants in one light and other migrants in another. So today we have an extra special guest here on the show. Not only is Ilsa my thesis supervisor, <laughs> but she's also the reason that this podcast started in the first place. Uh, it all started when Zen and I had had a couple casual conversations about maybe starting a podcast about geography, given that it's pretty, well, impossible to explain. And I mentioned it offhandedly to Ilsa one day, and before we knew it, we were starting a podcast. So not only is she the real founder of the geography of everything, but she's also an expert on migration. So who better to walk us through this tricky sort of minefield of a topic than the migration expert herself. So thank you so much for being here. Um, We're super excited to have you. And we just wanted to get started uh, with knowing a little bit about you and and what got you interested in this topic yes so thank you very much for inviting me it's a real pleasure to be here i've heard a lot about the podcast already so i'm very excited to be on the show um what interests me in migration um i guess it goes away long way back i grew up in a suburban part of a mid-sized city called leiden and even though Leiden is a mid-sized city, it never really felt uh, as a city to me because I was living in this um, white middle-class part of the city. Um, so I always dreamt of uh, escaping that particular place and learning more about the world um, and learning about different people and different cultures and different languages. And I remember it was um, in the mid-90s. My parents invited a Bosnian family to come once a week to have dinner with us. And it was the first time that I encountered uh, refugees. And it really um, intrigued me to learn about their history. And the, um, my mother invited her to come and eat with us 
but the Bosnian woman actually wanted to cook <laughs> because she was not allowed to cook in the asylum seeker center and she really missed cooking. So I also uh, got introduced to different uh, types of food and uh, it was a very, I think it was a very, yeah, kind of changing experience for me. I played with the children. We didn't speak the same language, but um, yeah, it got me really interested to to learn more about different cultures, different people, different migration trajectories. And then I started, um, after high school, I went to Paris for a year, a, a real city. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started my study, human geography, here in Utrecht. And I wrote a thesis about um, diversity and cities. It was about Moroccan and Turkish women and how they use an urban park in Amsterdam. And then I continued with a PhD on human smuggling. And I interviewed many refugees about their journeys towards Europe. And the Bosnian family came to my PhD defense and they were very proud of me. So it was, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a little bit uh, how I got into migration. Yeah, I mean, that's quite like a, a lifelong trajectory. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, during your PhD, it seems kind of forever. This is what you what you liked. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on migration. I have many different um, projects going on in the field. And uh, yeah, I'm not bored with it. Good. I think that's, <laughs> a, that's important. So I guess we want to start this conversation at, at the sort of most basic, basic level. So if you could describe simply, or as simply as possible, what is a migrant? Oh, wow, that's a nice question, because actually there's not a definition, like there's no universal definition or international definition or legal definition. Um, but I guess it's somebody who leaves their place of residence um, and it's not even necessary that they cross a border because you can be an internal migrant as well um, or an international migrant. Um, so there is space and travel over distance. So that's what geographers are very interested in. But there is also time. So you can be a temporary migrant or a, they could say, permanent migrant. Um, so there is the time element as well. And then there is all these different Categorization. So migration scholars really work around categorizations, so different types of migrants. And these categorizations are usually linked to motivation. So you can be a labor migrant or asylum seeker or a family migrant. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of diversity and there is not one single definition. Yeah, it's interesting, though, that we, we try to use one word to describe all of these experiences when yeah. in reality they are they are so varied that it's it's hard to imagine an umbrella category for all these people. But also, I mean, as far as I'm aware, all of us in some way, shape or form were migrants, right? We used to be a nomadic people. Yes, we're, yeah, you can argue we're all migrants. It's interesting when, when you ask people to... Mm, trace their own family history. Many families have migration in their um, migration history in their family. So there's always some part uh, of migration there. Um, 
But I think what is important to realize is that there is also a hierarchy. So there is different types of migrants, but some people are considered more a migrant than others. Um, so I think this distinction between a migrant and an expat is really telling because experts are also migrants, but they are called differently. Uh, and and treated differently, And no? they're treated differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there is, a, there is a hierarchy and there is... Um, th that's something that I also really learned during my PhD research when I was interviewing asylum seekers, that there is huge inequality when it comes to access to mobility. So for some people, it's much easier to travel and to be a migrant. And for others, it's very difficult to uh, even get out of your country. Uh, so there is um, aspiring migrants who want to be a migrant, but they cannot be a migrant. And this hierarchy, is that based on how much the country of destination wants, wants these migrants to, to come to their country? Uh, yes, so it's um, um, it's visa related. So when there is a, a need for migrants, um, for example, now in uh, in Europe there was um, a history with labor migrants from Eastern European countries, um, but now we see that recruitment agencies go more towards um, Central Asia, and it's and as a result it has become easier for people from Central Asia to uh, to travel so there is um, when there is a need for labor uh, there might be a, it might become easier for some people to get um, a visa uh, and here again it's often temporary so not permanent because it's not the idea that they settle um, but yeah there is a there is a distribution of uh, access to mobility uh, across the world that is really unevenly distributed. Yeah, but that, that I guess kind of takes us more into this modern world of migration, which is predominantly what you study. Of course, it's hard to do field work on the 1800s. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I was wondering if you could kind of take us back in time a little bit and maybe try to explain how migration has changed. So right now we're, we have airplanes and we have all of these different ways to move, but that didn't necessarily exist even a couple hundred years ago. So how do we see the history of migration within all of this? Hmm. Yeah, a lot has changed. It has become, uh, on the one hand, easier to travel, so more people are more mobile. On the other hand, there's also more restrictions and more border control. So for some people, it has become way more difficult to travel. And um, there is um, this example of um, migration between Morocco and Spain. Until the 1990s, it was very easy to travel between Morocco and Spain. And many people went to Spain to do seasonal labor. Uh, and it was very easy. They could just cross the border, and when the season was over, they returned. But then from mid-1990s onward, when they started to control the border and have uh, much more restrictive policies, it's now very difficult for Moroccans to go to Spain. Um, and smuggling increased, so people are relying on others to, um, to cross the border. Um, so you see that some more natural process of what we call circular mobility have now been obstructed by the policy. So um, 
more mobility for some, but more difficult and more dangerous uh, mobility for others. Um, yeah, but your question was more about the history. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I think there's there's different links to be made to the history. But when when we, for example, think about um, colonialization, um, there is there is migration from certain parts of the world with whom we have very concrete links, like Indonesia, in case of the Netherlands. Um, after colonization, uh, people returned to the Netherlands. They brought their wives or their husbands because they got like mixed marriages or children were born. Um, some even brought their domestic workers because they've become part of the family. So you can see that certain um, networks have started to grow and therefore migration increased and one, we call that chain migration so once families start to move other people will more likely also come so um, so that's why we have migration from certain parts of the world because of our history and not only colonization we also see um, for example the extraction of resources in certain parts of the world. Um, so the presence of the Netherlands, for example, in certain parts of the world is also feeding into um, migration. There's uh, at the moment a very uh, clear example where the, the EU has um, funded RSF, the Revolutionary Army in Sudan, to protect their borders in order to stop migrants traveling onward to Europe. And because Europe funded this resistance um, military, the RSF has become really big and has now fed into a new conflict in Sudan, resulting in more migration. <laughs> yes, so it's not only the colonial history, it's also our global political economy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you say that on the one hand, right, there is these sort of long-term histories involved in it, right? You see a lot of Surinamese people here, for example. But on the other hand, right, there's these modern things that happen, like the Bosnian family that you are connected with or all of the Ukrainians that are here now. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are sort of feeding into each other. I think migration is such an interesting way to observe both the past and the present and how they sort of feed into one another, right? Um, but I guess going back to the modern now, we spoke about this a little bit and... I was really curious to hear a little bit more about your research on smuggling mm -hmm. and human trafficking and sort of how is that experience or how is that migration process so different from the normalized, normalized, right? I say this with air quotes, mm -hmm. you can't see the air quotes, <laughs> but I, I'm using air quotes, uh, migrations. Yeah, it's very different in, in the sense that people are dependent on others for their migration. So that means that um, they very often do not have a say in where they will be brought to. So you can pay a smuggler to bring you to Europe, but if you happen to have family in Sweden, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will end up in Sweden. So you can also be dropped at Schiphol Airport and ask for, then you have to ask for asylum in the Netherlands. So what we see is that um, there is less choice for people to travel where where it would make most sense for them to be. 
Um, and then obviously there is the costs. Uh, it costs money, <laughs> um, but more importantly, the risk. Um, so because there is more border control, um, smugglers take higher risks to find. They always find loopholes uh, in in the in the in the border control um, field. Um, so migrants die at the borders now, and that's the I think the most important change that it's become so dangerous to to migrate. Um, and one very uh, nice or not nice clear <laughs> example of how people can end up in different countries is where I did a follow-up study after my PhD with Somali refugees who ended up in the Netherlands. They never really wanted to go to the Netherlands. They wanted to go to the UK. Um, but at that time, it's a nice um, link to your question about planes. So at that time, you could still travel on forged documents because we didn't have the technology to check everything. So people used what the police calls the lookalike method. You travel on somebody else's passport. Um, and then they were apprehended at Schiphol Airport because Schiphol is a very important hub um, where people transfer. Um, so they asked for asylum in the Netherlands. And because our procedures take so long, it took them five years to get their residence permit and then five more years to get the Dutch passport. So they were 10 years in the Netherlands before they could go to the UK on a Dutch passport. So that means that when you're in, most refugees are in their 20s, 30s, the most active period in your life, and you have to wait for 10 years before you can really start a new life. Yeah, but then that's, that's quite common then, no? at least in kind of like the north of Europe, that these are really, really arduous processes that take a really long time, that also once you're in it, you kind of can't get out of it. That was always my impression of it, that you're sort of stuck in this system cycle. Yes. Can you maybe explain a bit what those five or ten years are like, as in what, what can migrants do uh, in that period? So... Asylum seekers, when they are in procedure, they are uh, not allowed to work. They can do some volunteer work and they can work up, up until like eight hours a week, 12 hours a week. That's currently under discussion, um, but officially until now they were not allowed to work. They were not allowed to learn the language until they got their refugee status. So when you're in procedure, everything is still unknown. Um, and the official policy is that once, until we don't know whether you can stay here, you're not allowed to to do anything. Um, so that's basically waiting. Um, and then as time passes by and people ha start to have families and children go to school, um, people do settle. Um, and so. So it's also not that everybody leaves after they get their Dutch citizenship because many people also have started to build their life even though it was very difficult. Um, yeah, but it's it's a long time and it should really be organized differently. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can answer this, but could you maybe explain why it takes so long? As then I can understand that the bureaucratic system in the Netherlands can take a while, but five or ten years seems very long. Is that maybe also on purpose to uh, discourage the migrants uh, to come here? 
Yeah, wow, that's a it's a good question. Um, I think part of it is um, a lack of um, priority. So if they would really want to speed up the procedures, they could. Um, so there is a, a lack of willingness to organize this more efficiently. And for example, what is happening now in Ter Apel, which is um, the place where people who arrive in the Netherlands need to register, is is very full. Uh, and when new people arrive, the picture that is presented is that the new arrivals are causing the problem because there are too many. But actually, there are a lot of people who've been for a long time in procedure waiting there in a place that they should no longer be because they should already have been housed somewhere. Um, so it's kind of feeding into this story that there are too many. So in that way, it could be purposely flee, or at least it, it helps to feed into this idea that there are too many people arriving. Uh, but the real problem, obviously, is that there is no... Um, uh, passing through, like they, yeah. uh, there's a lot of people being um, stuck in the system, and people stuck in the system feeds into this uh, crisis idea that we're in a crisis, um, and the crisis is really framed around arrival. But I would argue it's a crisis of reception and it's a crisis of uh, lack of willingness to house and support people who are here. Yeah, I mean. Looking at this sort of reception side, right, I mean, I think that it's a very clear if they wanted to, they would type of situation. But at the same time, my imagination is not everybody that applies for asylum gets it. Mm -hmm. But what do they become? <laughs> Because they're still here and they're still migrants. So it's not like they disappear. It's not like a lot of them can't go home. <laughs> Yeah, so that category is called rejected asylum seekers or undocumented migrants. Um, yeah, you're very right. Many of them stay uh, because they cannot go home. Um, there's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of policy think tanks devoted to um, this question how to make sure people return. Um, but reality is that uh, a lot of countries of origin don't collaborate, so people cannot go home simply because their countries don't expect um, accept them back. Um, many of them have deserted the army or they've been politically active in the wrong parties. Um, so it's impossible to go back. Um, so this is really kind of a limbo, like they're in between. They're not allowed to be here and they cannot go back. Um, and here what we see is that At the local level, a lot of interesting um, things happen. So mayors play a very important role and local policies often differ from the national policies, simply because when you look at it from a city perspective, these are people who live here, who are in our streets, and you cannot really deny them. So I think for geographers, scale is always something that we're really interested in. So here. The difference between the local level and the national level is really important because um, at the local level, more progressive and more innovative policy solutions are, um, are thought of. Because as you say, you cannot really deny that they are here. So you need to somehow find a solution. 
Yeah, I mean, I also imagine that when you're thinking in these smaller scales, it's also a little bit easier to address, right? It's easier to kind of think about the problems that Rotterdam faces individually as opposed to all of the Netherlands. That's a bit overwhelming. But I would love to stay in this sort of city scale for a second because I think it's very visible that migrants shape cities. In almost any city anyone lives in, there's some kind of migrant and maybe they have food offerings or different businesses that are really specific. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how we see migrants shaping a city. So maybe thinking about it even culturally. So how do we see them impacting the places that they are? Mm, wow, that's a nice question. It's a big question. Migrants change cities, for sure. Um, and there is different levels. So they change the urban landscape in a, in a very visible way, like... Um, migrant neighborhoods like I think Chinatown is the most famous example where um, diversity is in a way um, commodified and commercialized um, but also more invisible ways so migrants change the city by the way they use the city and how they spend time in the city and how they how they use maybe different services in different ways or have different needs. Um, so I always like to see it as um, adding something on top of what is already there. And I think that's important to stress because a lot of the integration discourse is about how you fit in something that is already existing. Um, but I think it's way more exciting to look at how migrants add new layers to a city uh, because that's also what makes cities dynamic and interesting and attractive to many of us. I mean, that's why cities are different from these boring suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think if the only food offerings here was Dutch food, I would starve to death. <laughs> I don't think I would have made it this long yeah. if that was the only yes. option. Yeah, we should be thankful. Yeah, so thank you to the migrants of the Netherlands for feeding me, yes. <laughs> keeping me alive. Um, so yeah, that's like one way to think about it, right, culturally. So everything from donor kebab in Berlin to Chinatowns throughout the world. But what about economically? I think that there's a sort of interesting polarized conversation where one side says, you know, migrants are stealing jobs and ruining the economy and they're dangerous and da 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 da. And then there's this other side that migrants are great for business, they're great for the economy, um, they often take jobs that people don't want to do or they contribute new things. So economically in a city, how do we see migrants affecting mm -hmm. things? Well, if you ask an um, economist, they are very often uh, very pro-migration because migrants, as you say, they, they bring a lot to the economy. Um, we also know from, from innovation studies that new people, di working with diverse people means bringing new ideas and that often results in new things. So on the higher end of the market, diversity is really good and important and fruitful. But also, as you say, on the lower end of the job market, there is a, a lot of jobs done by migrants. And um, I think this became really um, visible during COVID-19, because most migrants were doing what we then called the essential workers. Um, so the jobs that had to continue. 
and people who got, could not afford to work from home because they were working in hospitals and cleaning and preparing our food. <laughs> um, so yes, they make a really important contribution. Um, so from an economic point of view, there is a, it's always interesting, even right-wing parties, if you argue from an economic point of view, they're pro-migration. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. But one thing in relation to the, as you said about food, um, I think it's really important to um, to have this, but there's also a, a more downside to commodifying um, ethnic culture and looking at it only as something exotic or something objectified. Um, so I think we should also, as a urban critical scholar, I think we should also be a bit careful in this appropriation. And um, yeah, we've done quite a lot of studies on Chinatown, also with the students in our department. And it's, um, it's interesting to look at how China is represented in these Chinatowns and how different countries are all merged together as one thing. Um, so if you think that going to a Chinatown would uh, learn you something about Chinese culture or have a positive impact on encounter, intercultural encounters, it's not necessarily the case. So we should also be a bit careful in how sometimes stereotypes are also reinforced, um, not necessarily always feeding into understanding each other. Um, so I think it's it's also an interesting debate to think about how a culture is visually represented in, in a city um, and how sometimes there's also criticism from within the group, how they are represented. And, um, and here again, there is an economic argument as well to what is considered profitable from a certain culture uh, and what not. So there might be certain elements of a culture that are important to um, to communicate, but they might not be profitable from an economic point of view. So there is also an interesting tension between making it or commercializing it uh, and and the side effects of that. <laughs> but I, I imagine that that's sort of where then the politics of it all kind of steps in, right? Um, because... Of course, they affect a place culturally and they affect a place economically, right? People don't just exist places. They also have an impact on the places they exist in. But politically, especially once people gain, for example, the power to vote. I mean, in the Netherlands, it's a little bit simpler. But in the U.S., for example, it takes a really long time to be able to vote. Um, and a big argument against migration is also rooted in this fact that they don't want people to vote because it'll start uh, impacting the policies that are made and the certain agendas that a country might have um, against what you might be considering like the native group. Um, but I think we all know that the native group of the U.S. is not actually the native group of the U.S. It's just who decided that they're native. But that's a story for another time. Um, but politically, once migrants do have the power to vote or organize themselves, do we see a way that they're able to shape policy or start affecting change in the places that they are in a more, in a less superficial food, you know, yes. kind of manner, but yeah. something a little yeah. bit more in depth. Yeah, so we see um, a growing presence of politicians with a migration background. 
um, and they are very active in 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 putting uh, issues around identity and integration on the on the agenda on the political agenda and i think one really important problem is i think the question around when you stop being a migrant is really important because a lot of these people are actually dutch so they have a migration history a migration background but the way the, the policies and the politics in the Netherlands is organized is very much around um, categorizations again. So you are a migrant and you can be a first, second and even third generation migrant. And that's very problematic because from many of the research projects I've been doing, there is always people asking me, when do I stop being a migrant and when will I be Dutch? And for some of the Somalis who actually moved away from the Netherlands to the UK, this was an important part of their consideration because they were they were like, oh my God, people from Suriname who speak Dutch and they're still considered a migrant. And how can we ever find our place in this country if we will always be identified as a migrant and not as a Dutch? Um, so I think it's really important that people start to speak about that and also challenge the, the categorizations that we have. And one way of doing that is through politics and, and policies and changing the terminology that we use. But then it also kind of becomes a, a product of race and passing, no? Because if someone is, let's say, Belgian or German, maybe within the first or second generation, they might still be a migrant, but if their kids speak perfect Dutch and they look like what our conception of a Dutch person is, mm -hmm. they're going to be Dutch much faster than someone who is Somali, no? Yeah, so that's, then we go back to the hierarchies again. Yes, so there's different hierarchies of migration, and for some it's easier to be identified as Dutch mm -hmm. than for others. I mean, we see it even now with the Ukrainians, I think, that yes. generally, and of course this isn't like a blanket statement, but generally Ukrainians are receiving a kind of more tolerant treatment yeah. in yeah. the whole of the EU, and especially in kind of Eastern yeah. Europe. Yeah, and that also links back to your question, Zena, like why is it taking so long, these procedures? So for Ukrainians, it didn't take long. There were so many people who signed up as a volunteer, there were so many people hosting, Ukrainians and there was no problem. It's also weird because because of the war in Ukraine there are so much more migrants but I never heard about a migrant Ukrainian migrant crisis in the Netherlands yeah. but you do hear about Syrians yeah. and those are our crises. Yeah. yeah so that's when you see that we differentiate between different groups and um, also there were a lot of employers who were calling uh, support organizations, the Refugee Council, like we want to employ Ukrainian migrants. And there were a lot of people who were like willing to offer them jobs, but they didn't do that for the Syrians and even less for the Eritreans. So when we had the 2015 refugee crisis, there was also a lot of volunteers to help Syrians, but the Eritrean refugees who came at the same time, uh, well, they came earlier as well, but there was a, a new wave. Um, 
there were way less volunteers who were willing to help Eritreans. So here you see the, the racialization, as you say. Yeah, so I think it's, it's interesting that it goes so many layers, right? Because realistically, a, a Ukrainian person wouldn't necessarily be that much more connected to Dutch culture than someone who's Syrian. And at the same time, right, they receive such a better treatment. But I think that looking maybe a bit into the future, right? So, of course, we have these war or these conflict migrants, or you have people that are escaping some kind of economic situation or political situation. But we all know climate change is real and that it's getting worse. So how is climate change going to start playing into migrations? Are we... You know, are we going to see now a climate change migrant crisis or are we already seeing it? Yes, I think we're already seeing part of it, but not necessarily in Europe. So there will be a lot of migration in what we call the region. Um, but also we don't know. I mean, we could even become refugees because the Netherlands might not um, survive. <laughs> I don't know. We don't know. I mean, there is so many... Um, scenarios possible um, but there is a link so when people can no longer live where they live they have to move um, so there will be more migration um, and certain parts of the world are more vulnerable um, but I think it's important to stress that in terms of numbers um, 95% of the refugees stays in the region. So they're in Asia, in Africa. It's only 5% in Europe. Sometimes we forget because the discourse is so around, oh, there are so many migrants coming, so many refugees. But it's very small numbers compared to other parts of the world. Um, so there will be more. Um, but initially, people will move to the neighboring country. Um, but we don't know what will happen in Europe. Maybe we will... We will become refugees. Yeah, I mean, just for reference, for, for those who don't know about the Netherlands, the, almost the entire country is either at sea level or below sea level. Mm -hmm. And the water is being kept out by this dike system that everyone expects to falter <laughs> at a certain point in the near future. I just keep hearing about how the dikes are going to break. I hope some countries will be welcoming. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, it'll be time for the Netherlands to see what it's like to be on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. um, before we wrap up, there is actually one more question that I, I wanted to ask that I just thought of is these sort of everyday migrations that we see. So a classic example, right, is people that work in Switzerland and Switzerland notoriously is super expensive so they instead choose to commute to to Switzerland but live in Germany or in France or in Italy and I guess the question is are those people also migrants? Yeah so I think we would not categorize them as migrants because they survive on their own and they are economically independent and they Commute. I think we would call them commuters. Um, but when I did my research with Somali refugees traveling within the EU, actually the ones moving from the Netherlands to the UK, it was some kind of an internal migration within the EU, but it was not categorized as such. It was uh, onward mobility of third country refugees, so it was a problem because people were not supposed to move because there is this policy that really tries to put people in, in a place 
And when people start to decide for themselves and do what they think is best for their life, it's considered a problem. So it's very interesting to see how these two types of mobility are categorized in, in different ways. And the, the mobility turn, as we call it in the literature, is very, is very uh, prominent in migration studies today. So I think we really try to look at mobility at migration from a mobility perspective. So looking at other types of mobility can learn us a lot about um, migration. And a related discussion in the field of migration today is um, called demigrantization. So actually um, having a bit more of a critical look at how we as migration scholars study migration and how we tend to overemphasize migration as part of somebody's identity. So looking at migrants purely as, as somebody who has migrated, whereas there are obviously people who have way more identities and do way more. They can be commuters as well. <laughs> um, so trying to also be a bit more critical to the unintended effects of seeing migrants purely as migrants and I think that's a very interesting debate because we yeah, as we say people people have so many more identities they're more than a migrant yeah I think what's coming up a lot in this conversation is that the categorization of people is really problematic and especially what we just said in the beginning that we don't have a clear definition for what a migrant is so how could we better frame or talk about migration? What would be a better approach or perspective? Yeah, so I think this mobility turn is very interesting. So looking at different types of mobility and trying to go a bit beyond migration as a category and as something that is problematic uh, and that feeds into this discussion around Demigrantizing, um, and I, and or 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 maybe an intersectional approach. Intersectionality is also something that we use a lot. So, yeah, you you can be a, a woman and a student and a migrant, and all these aspects say something about who you are and how you will proceed your life in this city. So it's not only being a migrant. So I think, even though there is no clear definition, I. I think it's also maybe good that there is not a clear definition and that we have a broad category because um, very often it's also turning into all sorts of problems when we try to squeeze people into a very strictly defined category. Yeah, I mean, I think this all makes a lot of sense, right? But at the same time, I see it as a sort of kind of catch-22 in a sense, right? Where you don't want to put a label on these things, but... There are different experiences of if you were recruited from a tech company mm. versus if you are fleeing a war. Yeah. And it's, it's, these are really different experiences, and it's difficult to equate them under one umbrella term of migration. Yeah. Um, so coming off of talking about trying to squeeze things into a very tight, finite category <laughs> and how it's impossible... Uh, we're going to ask you to do just that. So, <laughs> so we always end uh, every episode by asking our guests um, this one question, because at the end of the day, this is what this podcast is about. 
So in your eyes and in your perspective, what is geography? Hmm. Oh, nice. I think very simply put, it's how people change space and how space changes people. So I think what we talked about in terms of migration is how migrants shape the cities, but also how the cities shape migrants. Migrants.